Hello, everyone, and welcome to Quinn Cummings Gives Bad Advice, the podcast where I, Quinn Cummings, give advice to people I do not know. If you're joining us for the first time, you may be asking yourself, does Quinn really want to give me bad advice? And the answer is no, I do not want to give you bad advice. I want to give you good advice. But I have absolutely no qualification to give you any sort of advice at all. I am not a nurse. I am not a night watchman. I am not a necromancer. I give advice because it amuses me to do so. So you might be asking yourself, will this advice I'm about to give you be good advice? Well, I think the answer is in the title of the podcast. If you want me to give you bad advice, you can leave a question for me at qcbad.com. It's completely anonymous, and better yet, it's completely free. So I can offer up this advice with a 100% money-back guarantee. Now, let's get started. My first question today comes from qcbad.com. Subject heading, Ancestry Found My Birth Mother. Dear Quinn, I found out I was adopted when I was 39. To be honest, it came as a relief, as my dad was emotionally distant and my mom was emotionally abusive. Probably why my dad was distant, but it left me with no one to intervene and I grew up feeling alone, unloved, and never enough. Anyway, I took a DNA test because I was curious about my cultural heritage, and lo and behold, when the test showed family connections, it showed with a high confidence level, that they found my birth mother. I'm not sure what to do with this. I didn't do the DNA test to find birth family members, but because I was curious about my heritage. Not having had the best of luck with familial relationships, my husband's family is nuts, I am torn. Do I reach out or just leave it? Any advice? Yes. You are heading into unfamiliar terrain. Anyone who heads into unfamiliar terrain needs a map and guides. First, I want you to find some group, maybe on Reddit, of adults who have found their birth parents and what that was like. Read a bunch of those stories and then read a bunch more. I have three different people in my life who have found their birth mothers and each outcome was completely different. Second, if you haven't found one, I encourage you to find a therapist or a 12-step program to help you deal with the family dynamics you grew up with. It's a big enough disruption learning you were adopted and then finding your birth mother as an adult if your family was loving and great. Your situation is much, much more complicated. I strongly suggest not reaching out to your birth mother until your own feelings have been worked through at least a bit because you have no idea about your birth. You don't know if you were wanted, but she couldn't afford you, or if you were the result of an assault, or if you exist solely because a teenager's parents were strict Catholics. She might be excited to hear from you, or she might be horrified. People in her life now may have no idea you exist. Anyway, what I'm reading is that parental-aged people around you have been, as a rule, a complete disappointment. That might have left you completely unconsciously, of course, looking for a do-over from a person who might be unable or unwilling to provide it. Take this time right now 
to get as emotionally sound as you can before you make the next moves. And I suggest starting right away because that DNA test on that website goes both ways. Some family member may have just learned her secret. This one comes from QCBad.com with the subject heading, Am I the Asshole? Dear Quinn, I am recently 21 and have very few people who I call my true friends. Each time I spend a larger-than-average amount of time with any one of them, I end up annoyed at their quirks and tend to want to distance myself from them. Now, I have social anxiety, and so I tend to try to rebel against these instincts, but I can't help but wonder if they deserve to have a friend who actually wants to be with them. Advice, please. You do want to be with them. You just don't want to be with them as long as certain other people might want to be with them. That doesn't make you an asshole. That makes you an introvert. I am hugely introverted. And the way I describe it to the confused is that extroverts gather energy from social interactions and introverts are drained by it. There's no more rebelling against these instincts than there is rebelling against your own eye color. This is DNA level, baby. Just accept it. Besides, introverts have their own skills. If you haven't yet, read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts. You will learn all about yourself. Accept that you are more than capable of being a good friend for limited amounts of time. And that's enough. Ironically, I found that once I stopped treating my introversion like something I was doing to annoy other people, once I started respecting my need to recharge, the time I could go between needing those recharges actually lengthened. Be exactly who you are, and you end up saving psychic battery time. And if anyone grumbles about how you aren't there for them in the way they want you to be, cut them loose. If they don't respect you enough to understand you're doing the best you can, they aren't a friend. My next question comes from QCBad.com with the subject heading, My Brother is a Dumb Shit. Dear Quinn, I love my brother. He's in the middle of a nasty divorce after 18 years of marriage. Frankly, he's being just awful to his soon-to-be ex. He cheated on her, left her for a much younger woman, lied for years, says awful things about her, just being an all-around shit. I have a 12-year-old who loves her uncle. I don't want her to think he's acting like an asshole, but I also don't want her to think his behavior is okay. She also loves her aunt, and I don't want her to believe the bullshit my brother is spewing about her. What to do? Funny you should ask this question this week. As I have mentioned before, to my eternal confusion, I co-teach Sunday school at a church. I know, right? My co-teacher and I have decided this year we're going to talk about the idea of love, both inside the Bible and in the world. This past week, we asked our middle schoolers if you could like someone but not love them. They agreed, yes, you could. We then asked if you could love someone and not like them. They answered, oh, yeah. That one they understood intimately. 
When asked, it was their parents or their siblings, sometimes a cousin. But the fact remains, it's a big, complicated emotion that they were already wrestling with. Your daughter is the same age as my students. Something tells me she can handle you talking to her about how much you love your brother, but how frustrated you are at the chaos his behavior is causing. You can give her permission to love him without thinking his current actions are kind or mature. Teenagers are eerily good at spotting adult bullshit. As much as you feel it's appropriate, tell her the truth about the situation. And maybe, if it's right for your family, allow her to have some one-on-one time with her aunt. At this age, they are looking for people to show them how to be adults. This entire experience, both positive and negative, can be a huge object lesson. I wish you luck. Dear Quinn, my daughter and her wife were talking the other day about how their generation feels hopeless, from violence to politics to having jobs that can actually support them. I can't explain the violence or politics, but want to give them hope when it comes to jobs. They feel it's not even worth trying to find jobs because they don't have experience needed or a college education. They don't feel that going into debt for a college degree that most likely won't even get them the job they want makes sense. They also worry about making the wrong choices and not being able to shift careers once they are in one. I have been trying to explain that fear or hopelessness needs to be overcome to start reducing that fear and hopelessness, but I'm not getting through to them. So my question is, what can I say to motivate them? How can we give the next generation hope? Well, they're not wrong. I mean, their fears are valid. Now what? Do we just tell our children everything is overwhelming and to lie down and wait for death? Uh, I wouldn't. I think now is the time for Seneca. In case it's been a while... Uh, since you've taken a philosophy class, let me refresh your memory. Seneca is the Roman philosopher who gave the world Stoicism. Stoicism says, I'm going to sum this up very badly, but it says, everything changes. Attaching your well-being to anything, especially anything external, invites misery because nothing lasts. Your best bet is a clear, non-attached point of view, a view that says no matter the outcome, I take this information, I move forward. This is really hard because clinging to externals is awesome and makes humans feel fantastic until the external leaves and then you feel terrible and eat an entire jar of caramel to make the itchy sadness go away and maybe that's just me. The nice thing about stoicism is it slots nicely into any life. It doesn't interfere with any sort of faith that may or may not exist. It's an experiment anyone can run. Does everything change? Yes. Does attaching your well-being to externals leave a person open to despair because those things change? God, yes. See my jar of caramel. In case you're curious, Instagram is the exact opposite of stoicism. It is a junk drawer dedicated to the idea that externals are all that nothing can't be improved by a good filter, and that personal enlightenment is to be found in the bottom of a green drink. 
Snapchat, Instagram, these are for-profit companies dedicated to creating a problem, appearing to solve that problem, and then creating a little more problem so the average set of eyeballs keeps coming back. Studies have shown the correlation between anxiety and depression in teens and the amount of time they spend online. The internet is, quite literally, wiring them to need more internet. As far as your daughter and her wife go, it's hard to feel as if the things that you do may not change anything. But I would remind them of a bit of history, a little, a little younger than Seneca. The group of people that we refer to as the greatest generation grew up in the worst economic crisis America had ever known and then went to war to save the world from Nazis. I believe that today's teenagers and 20-somethings have grown up under some really crushing stresses and challenges. But maybe they are being designed to rise further than their parents ever could. Send her a link to this podcast. She won't listen because, you know, you're her parent. But hey, at least she tried. Dear Quinn, we are on vacation in Vermont. A lot of white people wearing Lululemon. I want to go home. How do I make this work? A long time ago, I was invited to a Grateful Dead concert. To say that I am not the sort of person you would usually find there is an understatement of Olympian proportions. But I was caught in a weak moment, and I thought, Quinn, stop being exactly like yourself. You are in your 20s, a time of exploration and no hangovers. Maybe you'll love the dead. Stop sneering and go. I went. Ninety seconds into the first song, I realized I had made a terrible mistake. Eleven minutes later, when the first song was finally finishing its warm-up, I excused myself from my friend and went outside to figure out what the hell I was going to do for the next however many hours this sodden, self-indulgent, tie-dyed mess was going to take. Someone spun past me dancing. I thought, dancing at a dead concert is what movement would be like if black people had never existed. This entertained me. I wrote it down in a notebook I always had with me. I had another mean thought about the food being sold outside by people with dirty hands. I wrote that thought down. I may not have had the good time the people inside had had, but I ended up having a good time. So here is my suggestion. It sounds as if this is your first and possibly last trip to Vermont. Fine. You are now an anthropologist, noting the habits of the locals. Count the varieties of gluten-free everything. Is that gluten-free water? Sure. Find something you hate and start a running tally every day. I promise you the thing you hate will bother you less if you're trying to beat your personal record of the day before. Keep your ears out for the most white woman in Lululemon thing you hear. In short, I want you to gamify your irritation. At the very least, it increases the odds you'll have hilarious stories to relate once you're finally sprung. Okay, I think that's enough bad advice for today. And remember, I can't give you bad advice if you don't ask for it. Your question doesn't have to be profound, complex, or emotionally demanding. 
it can be about pretty much anything because, let's face it, I am unqualified to offer advice across a wide range of subject matter. And as we all know, sometimes the nuttiest question gets the best bad advice. You can reach me on Twitter, at Quincy. That's Q-U-I-N-N-C-Y at Twitter.com. Or you can post a question to qcbad.com. Just log into letter Q, letter C, B-A-D.com, and there's a question form right there. The question can be any length, but I'm finding they work better if they're shorter. Just a hint. Before I go, I'd like to thank Richard Emmett, who composed my groovy music, and Keith Greenstein, who designed my groovy logo. People have already started asking me how they can get a Bad Advice Fork in a Toaster t-shirt or coffee mug, and my answer to them is, hang in there, we are working on it. I also want to thank Phil Roar and Prime Rib Productions for making it possible for you to hear any of this. Okay, that's enough for now. Keep those questions coming, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you.